the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. How comforting to hear Moses speak these words and then to see God's presence return to the tabernacle after they would set it up. Each time they stopped, God truly was dwelling in their midst. And so while they were marching to war, it points out, though, that their relationship with him came first. It's the same for us. Yes, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. But now that we've stopped, remember it's about our relationship with him. Our relationship with him comes first. And you know, I don't know about you, but what a great way to share the gospel with somebody. You tell them God is good and he's got good things planned for us. So won't you come with me and won't you share those good things? What a great invitation to give to somebody. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. We have seen God preparing the children of Israel for their move into the land promised to them. Last we saw in Numbers chapter 8 and 9, the congregation of Israel celebrated the dedicating of the tabernacle and had their first Passover celebration since their exodus from Egypt. God had commanded Moses and the Israelites to make two silver trumpets. When these trumpets were blown, it would let the people know they were to congregate in the tabernacle of meeting. We continue learning about the use of the silver trumpets and their significance as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9. Verse 9, it says they would also blow them for war. Verse 9 says, And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and when you blow him, you shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. That's interesting, because it says, And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then this is how you should do it. In other words, it is the responsibility of a government to protect his people, but notice what God tells them to do when they do so. They're to think of him first instead of tactical matters. They're not supposed to get together, what do we do? We've been invaded. They're supposed to sit down and go, you know what? Let's blow the trumpets. Let's ask the Lord to to be with us and let's commit this fight to him first. What a great way to approach like the problems you have in your marriage or in your work environment with your kids or with your neighbor or whatever it might be. To first off come and bring it to the Lord and go, Lord, you know what? We're going to bring this before you first before we even discuss details of it. Because the problem is you start discussing details and you get into the nitty gritty, your heart starts bending a certain way to a certain thing. And so what if the Lord might be saying, well, I want you to go this way. Well, if you start already taking down the tactical matters and figured out, well, the best chance lies here going this way. And the Lord says, but go this way. You're going to go, well, nope, Lord, we're going to go this way. This way lies the best chance of success. So we bring it to the Lord first. And again, this doesn't only apply to nations. You say, well, well, that's governments. And, you know, I wish and hope our government does do that when, when we go to battle. I hope we do pray and seek the Lord and, and commit it to him first. 
But Psalm 18.3 applies it to the individual. David said, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. He called upon the Lord first. What an awesome promise from God that if we acknowledge him, he will rescue us from our enemies. Amen? Verse 10, you'd also blow it for holy days. Also, in the day of your gladness and in the day of your solemn days. That's not personal days of gladness. That's like you walk up to the priest and you go, I'm having a great day, blow the horns, you know. No, it was for their holidays, their special occasions. So in your days of your gladness and then your solemn days. Days of gladness would be the celebrations. The days of solemnness would be like the day of atonement when they would reflect on their sin and, and ask the Lord to forgive them and really get their hearts right with God. Then also in the beginning of your months, so the new moon feast, he says, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, the trumpets were to remind them that this wasn't just another ritual. I don't know about you, but I can very easily slip into just singing or very easily just slip into doing something Christian. Have you ever found yourself praying? You pray for your food and then you kind of start eating. You go, hey, wait, did we pray? You're like, yeah, dad, you just prayed. You're like, yeah, it was really heartfelt. Uh, You can do that sometimes where you just slip into spiritual mode. Can you imagine what it's like as you're waiting in line, you're bringing your offering to the Lord and be easy to slip in there and all of a sudden, somebody blows the trumpets and you're like, oh, that's right. This is not just something we do. This is about me and the Lord. He says, I am the Lord your God. We have a relationship here. Make it meaningful. It was to be heartfelt and well thought out because their relationship with God was personal. What's interesting is what we've been doing every time that we have been studying something new in the Old Testament, we have been looking at how it points to Jesus. And these trumpets are new. It's the first time we've heard of them. How did they point to Jesus? Well, the trumpet is mentioned twice in connection to the rapture in the New Testament. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Twice the trumpet is mentioned in connection with the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the what? The trump of God, right? That's what it says. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last what? Now, we see that there, it is connected to the rapture somehow, a mention of a trumpet. Some would say this shows how the rapture occurs at the seventh trumpet of Revelation, which would be midway through the tribulation period. However, there is a rule of interpretation called the law of first mention. In other words, when a symbol first shows up in scripture, it will maintain that meaning throughout the Bible. So remember, what do the two trumpets signify in our numbers? To gather them together for assembly and then to send them out to start journeying. What's interesting is when we see this first mention of the trumpets, there's two trumpets, not seven. And again, their purpose is twofold, to assemble the people together and then number two, to signal the start or finish of a journey. Now, if that's the case, It makes more sense that the last trump mentioned there would not be the seventh trumpet of Revelation, but would signify the end of the church's journey. Should it surprise us then that before the tribulation starts, in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, we see John caught up to the heavens by the sounding of a what? A trumpet, he says, and I heard a voice as it were, a trumpet saying, come up here, right? If you're not pre-trib, it's okay. We are pre-trib here at Calvary. We're premillennial, pre-trib. It's, it's who we are. It's not a matter of salvation. So if you think otherwise, we love you. We just agree to disagree. But I'm explaining to you why we believe what we believe. 
Based on this, I believe the two trumpets point to Jesus by looking forward to the beginning and the end of the church age. You know, to originally assemble his bride together, to send them out to spread the gospel, and then to gather them together to bring them home to rest when their job is finished. That fits with the first mention of the trumpets. Now, you might be saying here, well, how do the seven trumpets of Revelation fit in then? What do they relate to in regards to the rapture? Well, they don't. What's interesting is the first time seven trumpets are mentioned, it's in Joshua 6.4. And that's where God tells Joshua to get the priests, and they actually take the shofar, not silver trumpets, different trumpets. And what do they do? They march around Jericho, and they blow their trumpets for what? To sound judgment upon Jericho, and the walls will fall down. What do those seven trumpets of Revelation symbolize? God's judgment. So if you want to look for what relates to those things, you can't look to these two trumpets. You can't look to the two passages on the rapture. You have to look at Joshua. That points forward, the marching around Jericho points forward to the seven trumpets of Revelation, both in which God brings judgment. This brings us back in numbers to the end of the preparation. So it's time to get going toward the promised land. And are you ready? So verse 11, Numbers chapter 10. And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. We've been waiting 10 chapters for this. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai. Where did the cloud stop? It rested in the wilderness of Paran. 20 days after the census is taken in Numbers chapter 1, and six days after the Passover celebration for those who were unclean in Numbers chapter 9, the cloud lifts itself up. God is on the move, and Israel follows. So where did they go? Well, they went about a three-day journey to the wilderness of Paran. They actually stop at three other places first. We'll see that in Numbers 11 and 12. But this is the first place they stop for a lengthy period of time. Now, the wilderness of Paran is a wild, arid plateau full of mountains, gorges, and wadis. And if you come to Israel with us, one of the things you'll see when you come driving down south from Galilee, on the left, you got the Dead Sea and the the other side of the Jordan. And then on your right side, you've got the mountains of Judea. And so when you, you come down there, you see all these wadis and everything. And they're very dangerous. You'll see nobody walking around there because if they get rain at all, which is, is not super common, but when they get it, it de- flash floods because it funnels the rain into these gorges and it's shoom. So it's, it's not a very safe place to be here in the wilderness of Paran. The lack of water and vegetation make it very difficult to settle down. And it stood in stark contrast to the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised to Israel. In fact, their stop here became a source of much complaining for Israel. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, though. But it does raise the question, with all this anticipation, waiting a year and a month, why would you stop here? <laughs> why would you stop in a place that is worst? Why would you go from desert to worst desert? Like, hey guys, we're getting ready to move. And we're going to look at it. It's going to be pomp and circumstance and marching. It's exciting. Everybody's moving out. And you're like, we're going to the promised land. Vegetales are all excited around you and everything. It's all good. And all of a sudden, what happens? The cloud stops. We stop in here? In Paran? There's nothing. At least it's Sinai. We had a rock that gave us water. Where is this? We went from desert to worst desert. We'll get into why God did that more next week, but suffice it to say, God does sometimes lead us from a desert into a worse desert, but we must trust him and remain content because he is with us and he's the one who led us there. So verse 13, and they first took their journey according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. 
And in the first place went the standard of the camp of the children of Judah, according to their armies. And over his host was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Nethaniel, the son of Zuar. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Zebulun, these are the three tribes that made up that first group, was Eliab, the son of Helan. And at that point, after the first group has gone forward, you know, and again, notice the pomp and circumstance here. How awesome this day must have been. There's their leader out front, and they said, and led them was Nashon, and led them was Eliab. And I mean, these are guys that are marching forth. They're excited. We should be excited about walking with the Lord. I imagine there was tons of whooping it up. Everyone's united. Everyone's in obedience. Everyone's rejoicing how it always should be. Now, following the first group was not the second group because verse 17 says, and the tabernacle was taken down and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set forward bearing the tabernacle with their wagons. These were the ones who used the wagons. So they went second after the first group under the tribe of Judah's leadership. Verse 18, now we get Reuben's group. And the standard of the camp of Reuben, they were in the south side of the camp. They set forward according to their armies. And over his host was Eliezer, the son of Shedi-ur. And over the house of the tribe of the children of Simeon was Shelumiel, the son of Zuri Shadiai. And over the house of the tribe of the children of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. So those three tribes go next. Now, it's interesting here, verse 21, now the next priestly, uh, next Levitical tribe goes. And the part of the Levitical tribe. And the Kohathites set forward bearing the sanctuary. The word sanctuary there could also mean sacred things. And that is what it means here. They're the ones that carried the Ark of the Covenant. They're the ones that carried the table of showbread, the golden menorah. And they go right in the middle because God's presence in those elements are to be right in the middle as well as in front. If you ever want to do a really cool Bible study, do a directional Bible study. Find out where God is in relation to you. And you know what you'll find? He's all around you. And not only that, but he's inside of you. He's in front of you, leading you. He's also your rear guard. He's to the left and to the right, taking care of whatever enemies might try to come and blindside you. He's above you. He's below you, underneath of the everlasting arms. I've already done half the Bible study for you. But I mean, he's all those places. He's, he's surrounding you. So here he is in the middle, and he's also in the front leading them. He's God. He can do that. He's everywhere. And it mentions, and they, the other did set up the tabernacle against they came. In other words, before they brought the pieces in and uncovered them for use, they would make sure that they would walk and they would set up. Verse 22. Next, we have the third camp. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim, that's on the west side, they set forward according to their armies. And over his host was Elishama, the son of Amihud. And over the house of the tri- uh, host of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideonai. So Ephraim's group goes next, and then the last group is Dan's group, verse 25. And the standard of the camp of the children of Israel, of the children of Dan set forward, which was the re-reward. In other words, they formed the rear guard of all the camps throughout their hosts. And over his host was Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Okran. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. Thus were the journeyings of the children of Israel. They always marched this way, according to their armies, when they set forward. 
Now, it's interesting because this is the first time it starts calling them an army. They weren't a very skilled army just yet, but I imagine they were a pretty formidable-looking force trailing across the desert in such an organized fashion. And I imagine it kept many bandits at bay. Well, verse 29, as they're about to leave, it says, Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel. Raguel is just another name for Reuel, his father-in-law. The Midianite, Moses, his father-in-law. So he's talking to his, basically his brother-in-law. Hobab is Moses' brother-in-law. That's his wife's sister. And he says to him, we are journeying into the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come thou with us and we will do you good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. Isn't that interesting? It makes a point to mention that this guy's a Midianite. He's not an Israelite. He's a Midianite. And yet Israel's heart is shown here to be initially to welcome anyone who wanted to follow the Lord. Remember, there was a group of Egyptians that came out of Egypt with them. So anybody that wanted to follow the Lord was welcome, not just Jews, not just Israelites. And so here he is, he's saying, come with us. God's going to bless us and he'll be good to you too. If you come with us, you'll experience those blessings. Israel was very evangelistic in the beginning. And you know, I don't know about you, but what a great way to share the gospel with somebody. You tell them God is good and he's got good things planned for us. So won't you come with me and won't you share in those good things? What a great invitation to give to somebody. Now, verse 30, we see that Hobab initially says no. And he said to him, no, I will not go, but I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. Um, His family was not from that, going to the promised land. They weren't from that area. They were desert people, nomads. His father was a priest there in that area. So he initially says no, but Moses persuades him and his family to come along. Look at verse 31. Moses said, leave us not, I pray you. For as much as you know how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and you may be to us instead of eyes. And it shall be, if you do go with us, yea, it shall be, that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto you. So it's interesting, Moses kind of stirs the pot a little bit. He says, you know, you can be our leader and our guide. We don't know where to camp or find water or find stuff. You know the area. How about you help us out? Being from that region, Hobab would know the best places for water or for grazing. But all that being said, I do kind of wonder why you'd need Hobab when God Almighty is kind of with you and guiding you. I do kind of wonder that. Uh, in this, it could be a, is this a case of God using practical means to achieve his purposes? Could be, I don't know. Or maybe just Moses, his wife is like, they, I want them coming with us. I don't want them staying out here. And Moses is like, I don't know. I'm trying to tell him he doesn't want to come. He's like, well, tell him he can be our guide. It's fine, fine. I'll tell him he can be the guide. I don't know if that's what's going on here. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's what's going on. My wife doesn't act like that, but maybe yours does and you relate. I don't know. I'll ask him when I get to heaven. I say, Moses, why did you do that? And he'll go, oh, ask my wife. I don't know. Maybe he'll be like, well, God used practical means to accomplish his purposes. We don't get any indication. Verse 33. Three says, and they departed from the mount of the Lord. But I think that they there is referring to the nation. I don't think it's referring to Hobab. We don't know from here that he goes, but Judges 1.16 tells us that Hobab and his family did go with Israel and they settled down in the land uh, that the tribe of Judah was given. So we do know they went. Verse 33, and they departed from the mount of the Lord. So they finally leave Sinai. Three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days journey to search out a resting place for them. They didn't need Hobab. God led them to the place he wanted them to be. Now, three days is not very far. 
Numbers 11.3 states that they stopped in a place called Tabera. And we'll find out why it gets that name next week. But it mentions here, and the cloud, verse 34, of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And then when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. And this is something he did every time they moved. The cloud would get up, and as it would do so, the trumpets would be blown. It's time to move, guys, time to journey. And Moses, as they started walking, would cry out and say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. What a cool thing that was. You know, every time you're on the move, and, and can you imagine how cool this moment was? You know, I'm sure as Moses said the words, they echoed back in a roar from the thousands all following behind him. And on the same token, how comforting to hear Moses speak these words and then to see God's presence return to the tabernacle after they would set it up. Each time they stopped, God truly was dwelling in their midst. And so while they were marching to war, it points out though that their relationship with him came first. And it's the same for us. Yes, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. But now that we've stopped, remember, it's about our relationship with him. Our relationship with him comes first. But when we get to chapter 11, if that's all we had up to this point, and no one, none of us had ever read numbers before, we would probably think to ourselves, this is the most spiritual book in the Bible. I mean, they do everything God says. They're singing, they're unified. Everybody's doing things right. But sadly, it didn't take long for the complaining to sit in. Why are we moving so slow? When are we going to see this milk and honey? Why are we stopping at this desert? Who's the yokel leading this thing? Is he even using his brain? I bet I could be a better leader than him. Throw him in jail, stone him. It's going to be interesting starting in chapter 11. But I think that serves as a good warning to us. Let's be excited here. Not here in numbers, but here as our church. Let's be excited as we experience God's presence. But let's not forget what we learn when we are here. Let's take it with us and live it out. Let's not just be all rah-rah and then the first time a trial comes that we forget everything that we learned. At the first time we look around and we go, okay, I'm not seeing any milk and honey, Lord. You said I am come that you might have life and more abundantly. I'm not seeing any abundantly. Not seeing any life. In fact, it looks like a lot of death around me right now. I've seen a lot of lack, a lot of need. Lord, are you even there? Instead of doing that, let's remember the things we're learning here tonight, learning here in the various meetings you go throughout the week. Let's remember what you read in your Bible each day and let's live it out. Because the truth is, his presence isn't in a cloud that goes before us. He's inside of us each and every day. And so as you set out in a few moments, we're gonna have the worship team come up and close us out. And as they come up and they, they lead us into praise, then you leave here, me hang, but you hang out for a bit, you know, have a cracker or two and talk a little bit, maybe pray with somebody, and then you get in your car or you walk home. As you set out to do that, kind of settle in your heart, saying, Lord, I want to walk this out. I don't want to leave here and be different than I was here. I want to leave here living out the things that you instilled into me. Amen? Lord, we do thank you for your great love and your great mercies for us. They are new every morning. And Lord, maybe they're there are some here tonight, like myself, at times we may have looked back to the last week and think, Lord, I, I didn't live it all out. Well, Lord, that's the beautiful thing about those new mercies. We have a fresh day today to make a new commitment to you. And so, Lord, we do commit to you. We want to be like Israel was in these first 10 chapters, where they do what you tell them to do. 
where they bring their problems to you and they walk them out and they trust you. And whatever it is you commanded, that's what they did. They kept their charge. Lord, we want to leave here and keep our charge, walking in the spirit so we don't fulfill the desires of our flesh. We don't want to be like the person who looks in the mirror and we, the word of God, it shows us things and we aren't doers of it and we think we're fine. Lord, we want to be living it out. So would you fill us with your spirit as we commit to doing that today? Would you remind us this week to live every day for you, that we might truly be lights that shine wherever we are? We ask these things in Jesus' name. As life continues on, we must choose to put God first. When we prioritize God in our life, we will be deeply in tune with His heart and movement. This may mean we sit and wait for when the Lord tells us to move. This may mean doing things that seem strange to the rest of the world. Whatever it is God has called us to, we should see it through to the end, to be faithful servants of God, useful for our Father's plan. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.